I'm here talking with my friend Daniel Dean about The Beatles' Get Back, which was directed by Peter Jackson. You couldn't... Actually, I don't think I could think of a better thing to marry Peter Jackson, director of Lord of the Rings, one of the greatest, you know, movie trilogies of all time, with The Beatles. Like... That's like that's like putting like ice cream on top of cake or something. You know, it's like the greatest. But the the documentary is 21 days in the studio with the Beatles as they rehearse for a forthcoming album, concert, and film project, and it climaxes with the 42 minute rooftop concert at Apple headquarters. Um, and it's in three parts. So I just broke it down into three parts here. And so starting with the first part, they start at this place. Twickingham Studios, which is like a film set or something. And from just from my perspective, like the first part of this documentary is the hardest part to watch. Like, like it was a little bit painful as it started because like you take a bunch of musicians, they've got like an entourage, you take them into a, like a film studio. It's not a music studio. It's not like a comfortable place to go make music. And then you just start rolling cameras and like, okay, now write a record. I mean, that's basically the, how this whole thing starts. And it's like, I don't know, what was your impression of, like, when you first started watching it, what was your impression of it? It was complete disorganized chaos with nobody having a clue what they were going to do or how they were going to do it. And it was, you know, I, I, I could feel the panic. Like, yeah. oh, my God, what are we going to do? And a lot of the ideas they throw out there are silly and stupid. And it was, uh, I, I don't know how they got anything done, but they finally managed to throw something together. But boy, did it come from humble beginnings. It did. I felt like, you know, it, in a way just have, uh, since I've been in a band in scenarios like this, where it's like you take a band that's like, okay, when we're in our comfortable environment, we know how to get together and write and work together when no one's watching or few people are watching, but you know, you're in your like, your studio, you're in your practice space or whatever. But when you like take those people and you just drop them, in, literally this place is like a warehouse with nothing in it, but cameras and lights. And they said, I mean, they said it's massive. It sounds horrible, horrible in here. Yeah. And that's like the first thing is like, I think George is like, it doesn't sound very good in yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. I think he did say that. <laughs> it's exactly. like one of the first doesn't things. sound very good. Yeah. yeah. So, and you know, and then they're all kind of, they're all kind of commenting on the sound and then, um, you know, I think this is like in the beginning, you see Glenn Johns for the first time. Mm. And with I don't know if you're coat. familiar with Glenn Johns, but he is, in my opinion, probably one of the most renowned producers of all time. Um, you know, he did a lot of the Rolling Stones. Led Zeppelin. Who, he worked on Led Zeppelin stuff. His brother is Andy Johns, who is a big part of Led Zeppelin's trajectory. Um, and his son is Ethan Johns, who is one of my favorite producers. He did Ryan Adams and Ray LaMontagne. Um, hmm. There's a ton of, 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 I wouldn't say modern bands, but bands of like the 90s era classic rock sounding artists that Ethan Johns did. Ethan Johns is an amazing music producer. He did all the first Kings of Leon's records. Oh, wow. that, you know, yeah, before I'll, they kind of turned into like pop goo or whatever it is they do now. <laughs> I don't even know. Do they do? They, they do they, they're they still, still doing work. stuff. Okay. Yeah, I didn't it's even not know with that. Ethan Johns. <laughs> I haven't listened to any of their music since like probably 2010. Yeah. So, yeah. but I really liked some of the stuff I heard from them yeah. way early on. So Ethan Johns worked with them a little okay. bit. Okay. Interesting. But, but anyways, you know, Glenn Johns, um, comes into the picture, but he is like not, 
Glenn Johns is not somebody that's ever worked with the Beatles. He's not their producer. Yeah. George Martin. He's not George Martin, right? George Martin is the producer of the Beatles, and that's and so Glenn Johns is kind of like coming onto the scene in the late in the last hour here. Um and as the documentary plays on, you do see him a lot, but he really just plays the role of engineer. Yeah, that's what you know. He, he didn't seem to me to be much of a producer. To no, them. he you know he gives his feedback on certain things, but mostly it's I would pretty say minimal. He's there to yeah. be like, do another take. You know <laughs> that one wasn't good enough, or you know mm-hmm. something's wrong with the microphones, or he's kind of like the troubleshooter for the session. Um, but Glenn Johnson, in his own right, is an amazing producer. I mean, he's made some really great records, and I think. I don't know. From my perspective, like let it be is probably the worst sounding record of their career. Yeah. I think most people probably do say that. I mean, well, maybe not their first records, you know, like SAR standing there and stuff like that. Those Mm -hmm. are, those probably sound worse. Um, they definitely sound worse. I mean, some of those recordings were in mono, you know, whatever there were the the primitive techniques of the day. Right. But I would say if you go right back before let it be, and you're in stuff like magical mystery tour and Sergeant Pepper's revolver, rubber soul, those records sound incredible, not just for the time. Like when I Mm -hmm. listen to those records now, I'm like, this is what everything should sound like. Um, so I think let it be like did suffer to some degree from the sound of the record. I don't think that was Glenn Johns's fault because they re-released that record and it's called let it be naked mm-hmm. and it sounds phenomenal. So the engineering was solid. I think Phil Spector, the serial killer is the, <laughs> the culprit for ruining the record. He did some good stuff at, at times, but not yeah. the serial killing part. That right. Was that was, bad. that was not good. But um, yeah, anyway, so let's, let's run through like what was in part one. There's you get to meet this guy, the director, Michael Lindsay hog, who to me just seems like a total kind of a, kind of a nerd like he just i don't know how did he come across to you the director i i I like his enthusiasm i guess some of his ideas are just insane i like the part whenever he really wants to go to tripoli to Uh do this this sunrise and sunset filming of them yeah you know in arabia yeah and george harrison is he says he says what does he say He says, uh, he's thinking, fuck off. <laughs> yeah. He says, he says it's impractical. And then I think at one point he says it's idiotic. Yeah. Or it's insane. And right. I'm like, yeah, that is insane. Yeah. Like, why well, is he so hung up you on You know, this? I mean, in his defense, though, I think that part of this whole documentary is it really is like looking at the three forces of power in the Beatles. And, and Ringo is not one of those. Ringo is a nice person Mm -hmm. who's there to be a good drummer and be a great friend to his friend. That's what it, Ringo is that character in this documentary. He's just a good dude and a great drummer. He's always there right in the morning. He's He's always ready to do his job. Yeah. He's he's great. He's solid. Yeah. He takes people's criticism and Mm -hmm. feedback and he applies it. You know, he's, he's awesome. But there is this power dynamic between Paul, who seems like, and I identify with this, but he seems like more of the visionary, somebody who's trying to do something interesting. Oh, we made a film or we, you know, we've been doing these interesting ways we make records. Let's do something interesting. You know, let's make a TV show or let's do something that's when people see it, they're like, oh, wow, they're innovating. Right. I think Paul McCartney, and I really relate with this um, because in my band, Quiet Downs, that's kind of how I always thought was like, how do you do something that, that wows people or makes them interested in you or has a marketing angle or something other than just, Oh, we got together in the studio. We made a record. Here's the record. 
And so in one way I relate with Paul, but on the other hand, he's kind of egging on the director with these weird ideas. Like one of his is like, let's go to the parliament and like, mm-hmm. you know, do yeah. the, do a concert there until they arrest us. Yeah. You know? like, or a, a children's hospital. Yeah. <laughs> or an orphanage. <laughs> an orphanage. Yeah. There's all these different ideas. You know, he has, I think he has one idea in part two where he's talking about having all these different news media people come in and interview everybody and like get their different takes on the songs and on the, the songwriting. There's all these crazy ideas. And I think that that is in a way, it seems a little bit crazy watching it, but having been somebody kind of on the other side of ideas, that's kind of what you want to do as a, as a band, you want to find ways to get your audience invested in you. And you got to remember they weren't the stones. The stones were touring. The Beatles weren't touring. They hadn't been touring for years. Um, they hated touring and it, and they stopped doing it. And I think that they wanted to find a way to connect with their audience. And that the way to do that was film and television and, and maybe some smaller concerts or interesting concerts where they didn't have to be playing stadiums where nobody could hear them and mm-hmm. they were getting attacked and things like that, you know? So that was one po- power dynamic was kind of Paul's side. Then it seemed like George was like not having any of it. Mm-hmm. And that's really how it came across to me was George was like, I want to make a record. This is stupid. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have people filming me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, he just didn't seem into the idea of what they were doing from day one. Mm-mm. The minute they got there, George was like, I want to make a record. I don't care about any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like John was in his own world with Yoko, mm-hmm. obviously. Yep. For sure. Um, which is, is a, maybe a different, uh, talking point, but I think John to a degree was the, um, medium. He was the guy who was trying to get everybody to kind of work together to figure out what it was. I don't think John had a strong opinion one way or another about how they were going to proceed. Mm -hmm. He just wanted everybody to proceed, you know, which was actually kind of interesting. I think um, from my perspective, you know, you, I've always kind of thought of, of John Lennon as the leader. Oh or, yeah. He was the, I think Ringo might've been older. They're the two oldest Ringo and John, but yes. John was more of the like senior of the group. He's the mm-hmm. person as a songwriter, the oldest songwriter who everybody kind of looks up to, you know, he, the Corey men was his band. So he started mm-hmm. the band. So I think John was, is kind of looked at as the leader of the band, but in this documentary, He's pretty reserved in terms of his opinions. You know, he well, offers input, but he doesn't like seem to have an agenda. Well, I think he, uh, they, they discuss this, uh, with the hidden microphone and yeah. the plant. I'm trying, I know I'm skipping ahead of that's your in part point. two, but yeah, that's, no, that's fine. But they kind of, they make reference to the fact that, you know, Paul is kind of the, the leader now. Yeah, and, and and John knew that, recognized it, and it seemed to me like he was okay with it, right? For the most part. Now, uh, George had a problem with it, I think. But. Yeah. So, so kind of like at the end of part one, basically the whole documentary, starting in part one, that whole two hours to me was the most uncomfortable of this. I think once you get beyond the Twickingham stuff. George, you know, comes back to the band. Oh yeah. It starts to start to feel like something that's like, For sure. Oh, I'm really invested in this. Um, but so George ends up leaving the band and it's not exactly clear why, but to me, it seems like he doesn't, he's not into the filming thing. He's not into any of these, like these ideas. He just wants to make a record. And 
he also makes it seem like Paul is a little bit of a dictator in terms of how he wants Mm -hmm. the parts to be on the song. Oh, he tells Paul straight up, you know, I'll play it however you want me to play it, or I won't play it at all. (laughs) Yeah, which is a really passive-aggressive kind of interaction. And I think that's why this part of it is the most uncomfortable. And honestly, I think that this stuff is kind of the original documentary that Michael Lindsay Hogg made has this vibe. Yeah, well, I think he was intending for... uh, Once, you know, once the events happened the way they did, I think his vision for the the documentary he was making was a, a breakup a breakup documentary right he wanted to make it as ugly as possible so he of course framed everything in the worst possible light yeah and that's what I, I saw an interview with Peter Jackson saying that that's kind of what he expected it to be yeah. and then but when he actually started watching all this footage because there's way more than obviously what's in the the finished product but he was amazed at just how well they actually got along yeah he was yeah. like this this wasn't they this wasn't a breakup movie. This yeah. was this was them really getting together and making I mean there were tiffs. They they fought with each other from time to time, but so there's all this, in all they got along pretty well. There's this interesting thing that Paul says kind of early on in part two, right before George comes back, and he says he's kind of making a joke. They're talking about Yoko Ono because John has not shown up. George has quit the band, yes. air quotes, quit the band, and John has not shown up to work that day. He was in the bed, I think. He was in bed. He wasn't answering the phone. And, you know, everybody's kind of trying to talk about Yoko and like, oh, is this? And Paul's actually, I thought was really awesome that Paul was more in the side of defending his friend saying like, look. He did. He said, you know, he said, it's not my place to tell them that she can't be here. Yeah, this is how he wants to live his Mm -hmm. life. Who the hell am I? It's not like Yoko was there interrupting rehearsal. Not really. She 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 didn't really say anything. She interrupted my ears whenever she would sing. (laughs) But she did you call not, that singing? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> making noise, but she didn't bother the band. Mm-mm. She was very quiet, mm-hmm. you know, supportive if if anything. But you know, something that you know, Paul's kind of defending John and Yoko's relationship and what they want to do, while acknowledging that yes, we're not as tight as we once were in in songwriting. I mean, it's inevitable that if Yoko is right beside John. Paul's not going to be. I mean, that's just yeah. kind of like how sure. growing up works. Yeah, because he was talking about how they used to live together, and yeah, they were I mean, just together all the time and yeah. constantly writing. And we've all we've all experienced this thing happen, and I think mm-hmm. people grow and and circumstances change. But um, something that he jokes about, which I, I didn't catch this until I watched this a second time. I haven't watched it full through twice, but I did just kind of jump around. He makes this joke. Oh, in 50 years, there's going to be a thing where (laughs) Yoko broke up the band. And I'm like, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy, (laughs) dude. Exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened is Uh that like, you know, this Michael Hogg's documentary gets made and news articles and all this other stuff, you know, stories come out. And basically it does kind of get pinned on Yoko Mm -hmm. that, you know, she came in and, and broke the band up, which is literally absurd. It's absurd even to say it because it's not the case at all. If anything, what broke the band up is that you have three people with gigantic egos who mm-hmm. are massive successes mm-hmm. who are growing up. Yeah, they all kind of wanted to do their thing. And I don't know if you've seen this, but you know, Rick Beato's done his little breakdown of the um of the documentary. And he keeps pointing out, and it's a great thing to point out, that they were all under 30 years old mm-hmm. in this documentary. You know. They look like they're my age. They yeah. look they look like they're more like in their forties. 
They've um, apparently had some pretty hard living early on, but <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. But you know, they're really young. I mean, George Harrison in this documentary is 25. It's insane. You know, so it, it shows a couple of things. It shows that like, they're still in a level of maturity where they haven't quite figured out how to mm. manage egos, family life, being a rock star, working together. And, and I think the biggest problem is that they've got 75 people around them all the time that are just placating their every thought. You know, it's, it's this, they don't treat them like humans. They treat them like Paul and mm. John, you know, they're like these, they treat them in this way where it's, it's kind of hard to gauge. You're not getting like a reflection or a, an opinion back on what you're saying. You're getting what they think you want to hear. Mm-hmm. You know, whoever that may be, if it's, if it's George's posse or, you know, he's got his, the like, Hare he's got his Hare Krishna monks like there, you know, and obviously there, I mean, that was kind of interesting to me that that was happening, but like they all kind of have their own little entourage to, to a degree that are all kind of giving them the feedback that they want to hear. And I think that like, they're so young that it's kind of hard to expect that they could manage that, which is a great juxtaposition of holy God, how are they able to write songs like this under that, in that circumstance, being that age and all of these things, they were still able to, within 20 days, not write, not only let it be the full record, mm-hmm. but also most of Abbey mm-hmm. Road, mm-hmm. which is probably one of the best Beatles records, you know, or, or maybe one of the greatest records of all time, in my opinion. I don't, I don't, where do you stand on that, like, as far as the records go? Oh, I love Abbey Road. Um, but I really, my favorite would be the Rubber Soul and Revolver. Revolver. That Those two, it's hard to say which one's the I, I guess Revolver's probably a better a better album, but I love Rubber Soul too. Uh, but Abbey Road's great. Yeah. Great album. It, I, You know, I totally agree with you. I've, I think Rubber Soul, Revolver, and I'm the same. I, can't, I don't know which is better, but they're both like kind of my favorite. Yeah, they're good. But, you know, Abbey Road, I think, might have my favorite songs on it. Like, yeah. Here Comes the Sun and oh, Something yeah. by George oh, are yeah. maybe two of the greatest songs ever written in the history of time. Yeah. He wrote them when he was 25 years old in a band with John and Paul who were trying to get him to kind of just play with the Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> oh, you brought a song in. Oh, good for you. Okay. Let's let's do our songs now. Yeah. And it's like, no, he was really yeah. coming into his own. I mean, even I even felt like John was somewhat patronizing, you know, when he would be like, "Oh, it's, you know, cuz they would like the way the songwriting was broken up was that it would be Lennon McCartney. That's mm-hmm. the way songwriting publishing was for those guys. Mm-hmm. They split their songwriting 50-50. Mm-hmm. Harrison had his own publishing, which was called Harry songs. So like, and you can always see John in there going, Oh, it's a Harry song. Like <laughs> in a way it's a little bit patronizing, you know, like he's kind of belittling, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, it's more than just George's publishing company. You know, George has really good songs and he's bringing them to the table right. to be on the record. Exactly. And so I, I do think that even though John was somewhat trying to get everybody to work together, he still did have that part of his, charisma if you want to call it that where he liked to jab his mates you know he liked to like razz everybody Uh up and he did that to george too and i think even though paul was the one that was like hey i want you to play it this way john kind of did that to george too to a degree and i think he even admits that in the um in the hidden microphone um scene which i think is probably the most illuminating scene in the whole documentary because they don't it shows you how different they're acting in front of the cameras 
to how they act when they're like, okay, we're in private. Let's mm-hmm. actually talk about this scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, I found it very limiting because John was being really candid with Paul saying like, look, man, like you have become the boss. And Paul, Paul's like, no, you've always been the boss. And, and, and John's like, yeah, but he, John literally says, you're so good that you can do everything and you don't even need us. He kind of, he says that, you know, and it's like, John recognizes Paul's talent. I mean, Paul is undeniably, he might be as talented as every other Beatle put together in terms of his ability to play and write mm-hmm. and create on the fly, yeah. direct. I mean, he is kind of uncanny. I totally agree. That, you know, they'll all be all having a conversation about what direction the documentary is going to take or when they're going to do a show. And then Paul goes sit down and just start and starts playing, writing, let it be or whatever, or, or get back, you know, yeah. I think is the song that gets referenced a lot. Like, you know, cause he's just kind of messing around. Mm-hmm. He's just mm-hmm. messing around until he comes up with something. Mm-hmm. But you know, that's the interesting thing too, is that of all of them, Paul seemed to be the one that could do it under the spotlight. All eyes are on him. He's like, fuck it. I'll just sit here and mumble mm-hmm. nonsense until I come up with something I like. And it felt like everybody else was more reserved. Well, and yeah, he definitely could work under the, under those circumstances, but everybody else was bringing theirs to the table. They were just, they weren't doing it in front of the camera. Yeah. It was, it seemed like. Cause George, G- I know George, he's like, he was watching some war movie where they had some, like a waltz number. Yeah. And he brings in, uh, what song is it? He brings in. That's in the three, the three, four time. Mm-hmm. I can't think of what it is off the top of my head now. Well, but. I'm trying to think. I mean, mine. Yes. I mean, mine. That's yeah. the one. Yeah. Well, see, that one's interesting because he tells that story, but I mean, mine is actually a, it's a fellow. It's from the Buddhist philosophy. I mean, mine is talking about ego. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that the lyrics of that song are pulled from some Eastern, you know, Eastern religion or Eastern mm-hmm. philosophies. Even though he says that about the, the yeah. war movie, I think he's I think talking he was more just ta- about the music. He was ta- yeah, he was talking yeah. about the, the the rhythm of it. Yeah, the the three four waltz feel. Yeah, because it's it's interesting. Like that, those lyrics are some of them are directly pulled out of like scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, what he's talking about in the song, but John did the same thing. It's like those guys would go home and at night they would re- think about that. They were at this fucking studio all day under the scrutiny of cameras trying to write their songs. And then they would go home and then they'd work on their songs at mm-hmm. night. So you can see the amount of commitment and like passion just to not even passion. I think they were just driven to do this. It's just what they did. You know, they just wrote music and they just did it all the time, you know, 24 hours a day. They just, you know, and it's like they felt more comfortable probably putting their songs together outside of the mm-hmm. scrutiny. And I'm sure Paul was doing that too. I'm sure he was. Yeah. But, um, but so let me look at some of these bullet points just for part two. Um, so George had left the band in part one. He comes back in part two. There's this moment though, right before he comes back where, you know, we were saying John is not, he hasn't shown up and they, they show Paul and you can tell like, he's like, it looks like he's on the verge of like breaking down, like to cry. Yeah, I do remember him looking really forlorn yeah, there. For Cause he's like, he just thought like, Oh God, like this might actually be yeah. it. Like is everybody's going to leave, you know? <laughs> And it's said multiple times that everybody in the band doesn't want to leave the band. You know, even George, even though he does this walkout, I think George was basically saying like, look, can we get some recording gear and go to a freaking studio? Yeah. Or, 
go to one of our houses that have a studio yeah. and like make a record. Now the know? recording gear they had was his. I know. Yeah. So <laughs> he lent it to them. Yeah. So it seems like they do these meetings with George that don't go well. And then they eventually do a meeting with George that goes well. They get him to come back. I think because they agreed to go to a studio. Yes. So they move into the, the Apple. But before they came back, uh, uh, John mentions like, well, if he doesn't come back, we'll just get Eric. Eric Clapton. Oh, get Eric Clapton. <laughs> <laughs> well, literally still George's friend. Yes. You know, it's like George is the one who loves Eric and yeah. is like always praising Eric Clapton. Can and, you imagine? Well, you know, I mean, there's other things that happened to George through Eric Clapton. I like, know. Eric, that's, that's exactly the, where <laughs> I was going with that. Eric like, Clapton steals George's he wife. He stole so. his wife. He yeah. steals his spot in the Beatles. Oh, my God. I think he might murder him. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think, it, I think it all went down fine. Eric Clapton's contributions to... While my guitar gently weeps oh, are yeah. great, you know those are supposedly great. took that in one take. Yeah, and one George take. and George ended up marrying the love of his life. Sure, post that, so sure. I think that you know it had his it all worked out fine. It worked out fine, yeah. But um, so once George comes back, um, you know after all this hidden mic stuff, when we get to hear John and Paul talking about it, um, this interesting thing happens. There's one thing I wanted to mention about this guy, Magic Alex. Had oh, you, had yes. you ever heard of him before? Of course, this? I've never heard of this guy. I've read all these different biographies. I've like Paul McCartney's biography is very illuminating on some okay. of these weird characters. That basically, what would happen is that you know when you're these rich rock stars like the Beatles, people like John, especially if they're doing drugs or whatever, mm-hmm. they'll meet these weird guys. These hangers on yeah. drug dealers yeah. or idea man yeah. you know people that are trying to get your money or whatever magic alex from my perspective and i think some of what paul mccartney talks about he was like this inventor like he would make up new guitars mm-hmm. and new recording equipment and all this stuff yeah they actually feature one of those made up guitars yeah. with the reversible <laughs> neck <laughs> so fucking and as stupid. somebody who's built guitars what a stupid idea yeah, so, so <laughs> that's dumb. never gonna work it's yeah. not functional it like rotates around yes. it's like how can anyone even hold that yeah it doesn't work but so um, basically they get George Harrison's recording equipment and they're going to bring that into Abbey or into uh, Apple headquarters. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember who says it, but like, Oh, we're going to get magic Alex to hook it up. Yeah. And and it sounds like a serious comment when it's said then. Uh-huh. And I remember the first time that I watched this, um, I think I was watching it with Sarah. No, I was watching it with my uncle and I was like, and you know, he didn't get the reference. And I was like, this is a joke. Yeah, What's this about is about to, to be a disaster. It's going to be a disaster. <laughs> and then later on, you find out that it, it is was a disaster. It was a disaster, yes. Basically, you know, Glenn Johns and George Martin comes mm-hmm. in and saves the day, and they're like, look, Magic Alex is not, can't do this. He's not qualified. So they bring real, real gear in, and, and Magic Alex is taken out of the picture. But in the, in Paul's biography, you get to hear a lot about this guy and how kind of ridiculous he is, how he's just always like in John and George's ear. Um, trying to get them to like invest in his weird ideas. And, you know, I think they did. I think that they had him like on retainer, just hmm. like, we'll fund you to just come up with like weird shit, you know? Hmm. Um, and I don't know if he ever made anything that was I was curious. I would be curious to know if yeah. he did, but um, so anyway, they do finally get set up. And then in part two, there's a total tonal shift in the entire documentary. And it's the second that Billy Preston oh, walks into the, door. I mean, it- I actually texted my cousin Elisha when I was watching it, and I was like, after Billy Preston had been in the on the screen for like three minutes, and I was like, because he and I were watching it sort of simultaneously, right. and I was like, oh my god, like everything just changed. You could just feel it. Yeah, you could feel that they changed every. And I think I saw where one of them made a comment one time that 
you know, if we ever have any guests or anything, we all kind of shape up and we, we act right. Yeah. And you, they did. Yeah. The second he walked in, everybody just was professional. Where before they were just kind of being goofy and goofing around and halfway taking it seriously. But when he, when he sat down at the keyboard and they took it real serious. Yeah. And you know, a lot of different things shifted there. Like they stopped being so jabby towards one another. They stopped not acknowledging each other's parts. I have experienced this in real time so much. Like even in my band, like every time we bring in another music, we've had horn players, we've had auxiliary musicians. Every time you bring in a a player, especially one that's good, somebody that's like better than Mm. everybody in the room, everything changes. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden it's like, Oh, I need to be on my best behavior. (laughs) I need to, I need to play everything. Oh, I need to show that our songs are good. You know, all this stuff happens. And it's like, as this happened, I just started going like, okay, now the documentary is about to start. Now you're going to actually get to see what it's like for these guys to make music up until that point. It was kind of just all over the place. Like they, they had these good song ideas, obviously, Mm -hmm. but they just, they didn't, nothing had come together. No, it was so disorganized. It was really, it was, it was was tough to watch there for a minute. It was, it was like, Oh God, you know, but I would say about halfway through when, when Billy Preston enters, it really gets good. And there's a a couple moments that happen in here. One is that you get to hear some of George's song ideas. Mm -hmm. I mean, mine's one of them. Mm -hmm. All things must pass, which Mm -hmm. isn't a Beatles featured song. It's obviously his triple album that he released after, you know, the breakup with the Beatles but and, it's an and, amazing song. Uh, I think John suggests the lyric change there. A mind can blow the clouds away or whatever. Because uh, he had yeah, written it in right. the, the wind. And he was like, no, I think the mind sounds better. Yeah. And he changed that's it. That's true. There's a lot of that actually in this. You know, one thing that I point, I did a, I was making little stories on Instagram. My, like mm. just things that I was noticing. Mm-hmm. And one of them was that Mal Evans, who is like their longtime tour manager. Mm-hmm. He's like the big guy with the big mm-hmm. glasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He contributes to the fucking lyrics. Oh yeah, like, when when, was you know, it, when they docu- were sitting down at the piano. Well, he, he, he documents. All yeah, the he wrote all the lyrics him. down for them. But right. you know, like he would say, like, "Oh, I like this lyric better. I like this." Or, "Oh, how about this word?" And Paul's like, "Oh yeah, that's a good word." I'm like, Mal is literally contributing to the lyrics. He does not get a writing credit. Yeah, anyway, I don't you know? think he got any royalties from it. But I mean, I know that that's some gray area, like writing credits. But when somebody's like actively contributing to lyric lyrical content i mean maybe in an odd instrumentation too he, yeah. he played the uh he played the, the anvil uh, yeah the anvil for maxwell silverhammer <laughs> yeah i don't think you can get a, a royalty for that one but you know for lyrics maybe but um there's one one little short scene and i wish we had seen more of this but ringo comes in and he starts playing octopus oh yes, Garden exactly. on the piano yeah and then George comes over and like starts helping him write the mm-hmm. song. And I was like, and they, the way they interact, this is before Billy Preston, by the way, when they started interacting or maybe it was like Billy Preston was there, I but think he hadn't shown that's up. That's what I, I think it was early in the morning and he there, had not yeah. gotten there yet. I was like, man, these guys are actually working together uh-huh. in a really yeah, kind he was, way. He was telling, uh, he was telling him, you know, you need to go to here to resolve it back to itself and. And he, to, he he presents a minor chord that's like a relative minor, and he's uh-huh. like, "This would be a nice way to like transition it so that you're not in this this kind of." Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Man, that was really nice." And it, it was just a brief little moment, but I really enjoyed seeing that. And one thing that I was struck that I just wanted to talk about was like every single member of the Beatles could play piano pretty damn yeah. good. 
Like even Ringo could play the piano. Like he could get around on it and play chords enough to sing a song. Yeah, and John was playing the bass. John was great and playing the piano and playing the uh, whatever the the Rhodes. I think they had a Rhodes. Yeah, they had a Rhodes or and an organ. At, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and then uh, somebody at some some point brought in uh, lap steel. Oh yeah. And George and John were both. Yes. And it was like new, like it's not like they were like, oh yeah, we play lap still. Like no, no they, they were had literally, literally just bought figuring it. it out. He even right said, there. I think he makes the comment like, if he plays it really well, we'll buy him a nice one. This was a cheap one, something yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, that was another thing that I wanted to point out was like, every so often, like you you have this scene happening and you'd, like the cameras all on the Beatles, and in the background, people are just like wheeling in like brand new Fender Rhodes. Out of the yeah. box, like taking the boxes off. Yeah. I mean, you know, now the, those instruments are worth oh. thousands of dollars. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the, I, the, they were bringing in the uh, Leslie speaker. Yeah, the like, big and Leslie like their cabinet. Fender amps that they were playing uh-huh. through were like brand new out of the box in 1969. And I'm looking at all this gear going like, <laughs> the little mics that they're singing through are Neumann's. Okay. You know, those are back really expensive. then, I mean, sure. they were those were dynamic mics. So they were probably still on the lower end. Yeah. But I mean, those mics today are you know, worth so much money. I'm just looking at all this equipment and they're just wheeling it in off trucks, brand new out of the box. And I'm like, wow, it's just, you know, it probably didn't cost as much then obviously when they were buying it, but still just, I don't know. It's so interesting. Now it's like, we long for vintage equipment, you know, vintage guitars and vintage amps and, you know, recording gear and stuff. And seeing this happen, I'm like, these guys are just playing brand new shit from yeah. like Guitar Center. It's yeah. like Guitar Center has arrived. We've got all the new basses and amps, and here's the brand new model of Fender Rhodes that mm-hmm. you're going to be playing on this record. Mm-hmm. It's like that really struck me as just this moment that won't really happen now. Mm-hmm. Not like that, like that. You know, I think back then it was like this heyday of equipment being designed and and sold that was the greatest equipment of all time. You yeah, know, well, like things that. There had never been a need for a lot of that stuff prior to the, you know, the fifties and sixties. Right. You know, gosh, yeah. I mean, solid body guitars didn't, weren't even, they weren't even a thing until the fifties. Yeah. Before that, everything was a jazz box. Right. Uh, or, you know, some sort of semi hollow body thing or a hollow body thing, yeah. whatever. And, and obviously most stuff was recorded with one microphone. Yeah, sure. And, one microphone. You know, yeah. You just balance everything in the room and the Beatles did some of that in the beginning too, but a lot of. Honestly, a lot of what the Beatles did, and not just the Beatles, but the engineers, George Martin, and the engineers that worked at Abbey Road, um, people like Geoff Emmerich, and you know, it was one of the one of the main engineers that worked on a lot of their uh, middle and early stuff. Like he worked on Sgt. Pepper. I mean, those guys were innovating the space. They were literally going like, "Well, we have two tracks to record with. Now we're we're at four tracks. Now we're you know." They were innovating in that space. They were cutting edge you know, recording artists mm-hmm. to a degree, which is again, another one of these silly things. When I think about it as somebody recording now, I'm like, please don't lump me into a category with a cutting edge recording artist. It would just be like an insult. You know, <laughs> but back then it was like, you want to be pushing the envelope. You want to be figuring out new technology and new thing. I mean, that kind of stuff really stuck out to me watching this. Um, but so as part three happens, this is really where you start to see, the songs taking shape. They're really like rehearsing, you know, Billy Preston has got in the groove, by the way, can I just say like, Oh my God, that guy is so amazing. He even sings in one of the scenes. And I'm like, that guy's like a better singer than any of the Beatles. He's like so good. He was, he was certainly a master of his instrument, man. 
Yeah, it's he just, just it, incredible. He never hit a bad note. I mean, everything never. he did was perfection. It's crazy. Yeah, it's... Uh, you certainly hear, hear the Beatles hit some bad notes, but he never did. Right. I mean, and, and even not even just like... A lot of times you think of technical players as people who can, you know, fill in the gaps, but they don't, they, they don't bring like amazing melodies. But yeah. like you think about stuff like his little runs and I got a feeling. Oh man. They're so freaking memorable. They're mm-hmm. so melodic. Honestly, this record, in my opinion, would be very lackluster without his playing. Oh no. He, he's a key part of why that record is good. It is so amazing. Like just what he was able to do so effortlessly, honestly. Oh yeah. You know, that said, was just second nature to said him. Said very little. He's uh-huh. just like, okay, well, let me. You know, he didn't even ask for the chords. He just listened, <laughs> looked around a little uh-huh. bit, and then played the best part in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that stuff always strikes me. And I, I think for people that are not music aficionados and they're not musicians, like there's a big difference between somebody like John Lennon and Billy Preston. Oh yeah. You know, John Lennon is maybe a more you would think of as a better musician in terms of artistry or in terms of having a vision or an idea of how to make music no one's ever heard or putting together an emotive song. Mm-hmm. But Billy Preston is like top tier, can get in a room with any musician on earth and play yes. amazing parts on his instrument that just fit the bill with probably any style. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where John Lennon would probably struggle in that environment. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, John, he could, he could play guitar. He was an okay guitar player, but he, he was not proficient the way that billy preston is proficient on that instrument right he he knew all of the little he knew all of the little how to how to just wrap things up so nicely and and musically yes where john was more of he'd he'd bang out some chords but right it's not the same thing and and surprisingly like you said i mean you know they had that like really weird six string bass oh yeah it kind of looked like a fender jag it was a fender of some sort mustang or jag or something that's what it looked like but it um it might have been something more like a music makers i can't remember what the models were that era but like it was such a weird instrument i was just like you'd always hear bass notes and you'd see that uh-huh. and like, it looks just like a baritone it guitar does I, it, I thought it was a guitar yeah but when you hear it it's a bass it's, a bass. it's definitely a bass but you know he would he would play bass and they would kind of swap roles i mean really only paul would be the only one that really played drums other than ringo yes um you know and paul it's funny. There's like this, this, the joke that goes around is like, Oh, you know, Ringo wasn't even the best drummer in the Beatles or whatever. That is not fucking true. Yeah, Ringo was. is better than Paul at drums. I mean, Paul can play drums, but you know, Ringo is amazing. Yeah. Like there is never, this is what kind of struck me just thinking about the amount of like monumental work it probably took to put this documentary together from a sound perspective. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine, but like there is never, one thing played by Ringo that is not in the pocket. Oh yeah. Never. Um, you know, John and Paul and George doink around on their instruments. Ringo is rock solid always. every time he yeah. is playing. Like that guy has a feel like no human alive. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I'm sure Phil Rudd is probably like that from ACDC, mm-hmm. you know, just simple, but mm-hmm. like when he's playing, it is like, Oh, everything is right. Mm-hmm. I mean, every time Ringo played, it was right. It just, I just don't think you can overstate how good he is. I mean, he just doesn't get the kind of credit in terms of what it takes to be a good drummer. You know, there's people with chops. You get all these, you know, the Neil Peart's. Yes. You know, the people that get all John the, Bonham. John Bonham that get these accolades for Keith Moon. 
their playing, but like, and they, and don't get me wrong. Those guys all had great feel too, and great timing and stuff too. It's not to say that they don't, but there's something about how Ringo plays that just makes the Beatles able to happen. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you take him out of the picture, like who's holding that, that shit together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause none of them really are on top of, you know, I think when Paul plays piano, it feels solid. It does. Yeah. You know, he really brings a song together with the piano. But Paul plays bass more like a lead guitar player. You know, he doesn't, he kind of is like, you guys figure out what you're mm-hmm. doing and let me noodle around until I find a cool part, you know, which that's how I think of bass too, really. You let know, me, George George, impre- George impressed me with his bass playing. When you hear him play in the bass, it's like, oh gosh, he, he definitely took notes from when Paul was playing. Yeah. Well, I think they all did have a foundation of like some basics because of how much work they did in Hamburg playing yeah. cover songs for hours and hours and hours and hours and years, you know, and just learning people's music. They understood how to walk, you know, cause a lot yeah. of times the, the lead guitar would walk the same notes that the bass guitar would walk while the rhythm guitar is strumming. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of crossover in that, that you'll find in some of that old playing. Like if you listen to George, like I could hear a lot of his parts being bass parts mm-hmm. just because there's the, they're kind of simple melodies that are walking around within the scale of whatever the chord progression is. So I think some of that applied to, to bass. And I think what makes Paul so amazing is, is that Paul was outside of that box. You know, Paul was playing vocal lines and mm-hmm. horn lines oh, and yeah. things that, that he would hear on other instruments. He was applying those to bass. And that's really what made him prolific in terms of his melody writing, I think. Um, and so, something that I also noticed getting into to part three is like, this is really where you start to see John and Paul's, chemistry you know as the songs start to take shape and they start to rehearse john and paul are like back and forth back and forth back and forth back and forth and they're kind of like pushing each other to make the song something um in a subtle way it's not this real overt way where like in the beginning you kind of see them jabbing each other like john really the kind of like they make fun of each other's songs there's something nice about how they don't take it too seriously mm-hmm. but for the love of God, stop messing around and get to work guys. Like I just felt like they just like, they did more messing around than they did, you know, actual songwriting. It seems like that. I wonder how much of the serious, uh, the serious face was, you know, ended up on the cutting room floor. Cause Peter because Jackson had, to, he had, he couldn't, he couldn't just make a, a movie that was 40 hours long. Right. So, and, and also you're, you're trying to make something that will be entertaining exactly. to people that are not necessarily in a band yes. or guitar players or Beatles or, fans at all. Or, or even, even, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe he knows he's making it for Beatles fans, but even Beatles fans don't just want to hear them just rehearsing them just the rehearsing same the song, the song over so and it's, over. It's probably and that over. a lot of that yeah. com, you know, comical relief mm-hmm. is what allows you to make something more dynamic for a broader mm-hmm. audience. But having said that, there was still plenty of footage of, of them of goofing happened. around. Yeah, you know the camera didn't lie; yes. it all happened. Yes. So there was a, just a lot of goofing around, and you know that does happen in band spaces. It always has. I mean, that's kind of a part of the chemistry of a band. But man, that stuff drives me nuts. Yeah. Like you know, people not um, just getting with the program yeah. and working on stuff. Be on task, but please. As you know, part three is going going down you can tell that they obviously have been putting in the work because the songs are coming together they're starting to sound good they're actually starting to capture takes you start to see you know the text pop up the screen this take was taken from the album you know whatever yes every time that cop popped up on the screen i was like oh yes 
No, yeah. I, I really wanted to see the whole take. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I would love to have seen that. Maybe it exists somewhere. I don't yeah. know, but. Um, and I think more than anything, there's a vibe about part three. Billy Preston's been in the mix. George is happy again. They're in a studio. You can see that they're kind of in their element. And to a degree, I think there must have been something said in their meetings to get the entourages out of there. Mm. Yoko's still there, mm-hmm. but, and Linda comes yeah, in Yeah, she a comes lot. in a couple you know, times. I think, and Maureen, like Ringo's wife, yeah. People, yeah. people come in, but in general, you rarely see the director. Michael Lindsay Hogg yes. is, is, he's there, but he's like in the control room. Mm-hmm. People are not hovering around them anymore, you know? And so they really, it seems like they said, look, here's some ground rules. Let's get all these people out of the way. Mm-hmm. Let's, you know, keep the cameras on. Yeah, we we'll leave record, the cameras, leave let, the mics just, up. Let's get all the opinions out of the room. Let's stop talking about what we're making when we're trying to work, which I really appreciate because that's kind of what happens in a band is you get sidetracked talking about what your show is going to be like or how you want to put your album out or, you know, whatever, and you stop working on the actual songs. That's what happens, especially when there's other people in the room. And so all that kind of gets gets cut and they really start to work on the songs. And then it is the director, I believe, that suggests, oh, I have an idea. We could we could do a concert on the rooftop. Yeah, I think uh, you don't hear him say it, but you see Paul and him sort of, you know, yeah. talking to one another off in the corner. And yeah. I, that must be what's and, being and, and it's interesting because you can see that Paul, like... He gets a little twinkle in his he's eye. He's found a <laughs> yeah. way to serve what Paul wants to do, which is, I want to do a spectacle. You know, Paul's like, I want to get arrested apartments. So if yeah. we do a rooftop concert, maybe we will get yeah. arrested. But, you know, they own the building. I'm sure they found ways to get cameras on other buildings. You know, actually, we've done this with Quietowns before where we've done, like... We've gone up and put like gobo spotlights on other buildings to project mm. on buildings and shit, like without anybody mm-hmm. knowing. It's not legal technically, yeah. but we had permission from the building we were projecting on, just not from the <laughs> building we were projecting from. So there's a lot of that going on. But um, so they orchestrate this whole thing and they start talking about that as they're rehearsing the songs, and it seems like they get everybody on board. Um, it's like they have to find common ground on like you know, what type of show are we going to do? What type of film are we going to make? All that stuff. I think those powers of John and George and Paul all coming together and saying like, okay, we're fine. Let's do that. We'll do it. You know, and making Paul happy enough that Mm -hmm. we're actually doing something of note as opposed to just making another record. Um, Which as a listener to records, that seems kind of silly, but being in a band, I really relate with that because you just get bored doing the same thing over and over and over. It's like, why am I doing this? You know, I'm just making a record again and then that's it. And I'm not going to play any shows. Nobody's going to, you're not going to interact with anybody, mm-hmm. you know? So I really cannot relate with why Paul wanted to do something interesting. Mm-hmm. And you know what, what happens when these, uh, when the show actually starts, which is a good bit of the last part mm-hmm. is the rooftop. Con- they actually show a lot of the concert. Mm-hmm. They show multiple takes of get back. Yeah. Multiple takes of don't let me down. Yes. Um, I think multiple takes of dig a pony. They do. I think there's at least two couple. There's several takes of, of songs and a lot of the takes that are on the record, yes. which is amazing. And then on let it be naked, which have you spent a lot of time with that record? I've, I've listened to it a little. Dude. It, it is so good. Like the way I it, want to get a hard copy of it. Cause I don't even own yeah, a copy. I'll, I'll give it to you because it, it is so it's like, to me, it is let it be like, I don't listen to the other. Yeah. Let it be. I'll listen to let it be naked. 
Um, it came out in 2003 and I was 21. Oh, I remember when it came out. Yeah. And I remember buying it the day it came out and it, it's one, it's one of the records that I think was transformative for me. It's like the way it sounded, how it was mixed. Um, you know, just, you can just really hear what they're doing in this documentary, what you're looking at. That record sounds like it, you know, we're let it be the originals got all this glossy production mm-hmm. on top of that. Mm-hmm. Um, let it be naked really sounds like that. And so, and, and on that, some of the, those songs are different takes Oh, from, some of the sessions inside and some of the concert mm-hmm. sessions. Actually, I believe either I've got a feeling or don't let me down, or maybe both are two takes cut together. So it's like maybe the first half of the song is from one take and the second half is from another take. <laughs> um, but man, it's, it's so good. You know, well, don't the, let me down. Wasn't even on the original. Let it be. Yeah. So there was some songs that I think even get back was a, it was it, it's a, it's the last song or maybe it wasn't even on the record. It was a single it was on the record. I think so it was the last they used song. to do things over. They would put out things, stuff yeah. like Penny Lane, and those songs weren't even on a record. Like that's one of the greatest songs the Beatles ever wrote. It's not even on a record. It's like a, it was a single that they, came out in between like yeah, Magical uh, Mystery and and uh, Don't Let Me Down was a B side, I think. Yeah, and so, it wasn't on the record. Yeah, so I think the um, actually I do have a note about this. I put this uh, two songs had been included. Had uh, let's see, they took off Maggie May and uh, Dig It which were like two of these kind of yeah not really full tracks yeah kind of like little filler songs yeah. almost and then they added uh, I've got a feeling um which was the B-side to get back mm-hmm. um let's see what what else they did on there they did a lot of the songs were remixed or all of them obviously were remastered but they were remixed and then some of them are different takes and some of them are different takes that are cut with other different takes. So there's a lot of different stuff on there that you don't even hear on the original Let It Be. And, and in my opinion, The Longing Winding Road is like the take is the final take recorded on the 31st of January, 1969, instead of the album take from the 26th. Hmm. It is such a good take. Like hmm. I'm so glad that it got released. And Paul is, initiated the project. Paul never liked. He always hated the 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 stuff that Phil Spector did. He always hated it. But here's the interesting thing: um, getting kind of to the end of this, them doing the concert. Like Glenn Johns mixed this record like six times, and they hated it every time, and they just never put it out. That's why they ended up getting Phil Spector. Oh. Um, you know, they tried to get George Martin, but George Martin had basically taken a hands-off approach. He was the kind of executive producer. Like he was around, but he was no longer kind of like doing stuff. He was hmm. just making sure the Beatles have what they need. And... Was it that way on Abbey Road too? No. So after this experience, they brought George Martin okay. back in and you can tell when you they hear needed... Abbey Road, it's like, Oh my God. Yeah. Orchestrations that yeah. are beautifully written and all these just amazing parts. Um, you know, that's why you can really tell if you listen to Phil Spector's, let it be next to Abbey Road. They both are very produced, but Abbey Road is like, one of the greatest sounding things you've ever heard. And Phil Spector's just like, he just like turned effects on and like, <laughs> you know, he did score things, but the scores just don't have the, they just don't have the life and beauty and melodic sense that, I mean, George, I, I referred to George Martin. Like when you see him in this documentary, it's like a King walking in a room full of Kings and they, all the Kings are like, Oh yeah, it's George Martin. 
Like you can tell. Is, oh, they respected the crap out of him. You his can tell. presence yeah. through that screen is like he has charisma, charm. He's stoic, poise. He is a leader. Like mm-hmm. when he walks in, I mean, he was in the military too. I think he is like, he's mm. got this leadership quality that is just so undeniable. Um, and he's such an amazing musician. You know, he plays like harpsichord and piano and and he does all of the arrangements, stuff like Eleanor Rigby. He wrote all that. That's mm. all out of his head. You know, mm. like George Martin is so amazing and, and it's really fun to see him on this documentary just to get to see him, mm-hmm. like, you know, just doing anything. Yeah. Um, he's so amazing. Like the Beatles owe that guy so much to their legacy. You know, it was really him who was able to like, it's kind of like the classic scenario of what a producer does for a band. They don't just record your record. Mm-hmm. That's what the engineer does. They actually employ engineers to do that yeah. job. You know, even though George Martin was an engineer to a degree, like what a producer should be doing is they should be trying to figure out how to take what the band thinks of as their vision and making that a vision that is palatable for the masses or for, for all people. And beyond that, a lot of producers and George Martin for sure. I mean, he helped sculpt what they would become, how they would work on music, how they would write music, how they would think of it, the things that they would know they could do in their music. You know, Paul would just say, well, I know we can get George to come up with, you know, like Penny Lane's a great example with the piccolo trumpet part, Mm -hmm. you know, like he would just sing a melody and then he would be like, George, what do we do? How do we make this cool? You know? And George would go, well, here's what we do. You know? So I think like, I don't know, for me as a music producer, just seeing George Martin, like just, alive in the room is like, Oh my God. Yeah. It's funny. It's like, I think other people think of the Beatles like that. I'm like, (laughs) Oh, it's George Martin. You know, he's the guy that, you know, I don't think I would be starstruck by many people, but like, you know, George Martin is like, I don't know. He just has something about him. Um, but it was really fun to see him and Glenn Johns and Billy Preston and all these like different icon. These people are just iconic. You know, they've, they've shaped the culture you know, there, there, there are people that have, I mean, obviously the Beatles, I mean, are, is there any human on earth that doesn't know who the Beatles are? I mean, maybe Some, people that are under the age of like 21 yeah, don't, but yes. like, you know what I'm saying? People, Anybody who is uh, of, of, of reasonable age, right. they'd be a sad individual that's never heard of the he's Beatles. never heard of them, you know, yeah. like, I mean, obviously those people aren't expected to know who George Martin is, but like, those are, those people like George Martin and Glenn Johns are the people that have shaped music that everyone has listened to for a general, you know, multiple generations mm-hmm. at this point, you know, cause this was what, 1969, 69. So yeah. that's what 50, 50 years ago. Yeah. Ish. 52. Or, yeah. I mean, that's a long time that people have been listening to, you know, the Beatles records, obviously, but with Glenn Johns, even, Zeppelin and the Stones and the mm-hmm. Who and Steve Miller. I mean, he did Steve Miller records. They like, do the Eagles too. The Eagles. The Eagles. Oof. It's good stuff. Yeah. I mean, Glenn Johns really, I mean, he really knew good music and he knew how to capture good music. You know, I think that, um, like I said, when you listen to Let It Be Naked, you're like, you can hear the engineer. It's like, oh my God, whoever engineered this is a fucking miracle worker. <laughs> I mean, half of it was done outdoors mm-hmm. on top of a roof with mm-hmm. the wind blowing and like, all with portable rigs that were just basically on borrow because they didn't have the permanent stuff. No, yet. I know. None of it. And it's like, when I hear that, I'm like, 
I would die to make just <laughs> one song, just one album that's that that could capture this vibe, you know? Like, and they just were like, I don't know. We're going to go on a roof. Let's throw some microphones up. You know, let's, uh, well, I don't know. We'll just do what we can. It's like, it's, there's so many, I guess, factors that come into making these things. And watching this documentary was, um, for me, it wasn't that illuminating in terms of like understanding how the process works. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, yeah, I already know mm-hmm. all this, but it is really fun to see how much chaos, you know, is are in these environments around not just the Beatles, but a lot of musicians, a lot of artists and the environments where these types of things were made in that era, in that period, even now too. I mean, I think it's probably a little bit more controlled now, but back then, you know, these bands that were this big, I mean, I'm sure every one of the Rolling Stones records were like this. You know, there's just tons of people there. Just hangers on and hangers on, (laughs) you know, people trying to, you know, make, you know, manager wannabes. That was one guy I was going to mention is Alan Klein, who is the manager. I I, I heard they mentioned him, but I don't know anything about him. So he's another guy that by reading some of the biographies and um, other documentaries and stuff, you'll hear about Alan Klein. Alan Klein managed the Rolling Stones and he basically had said, I'm going to be the Beatles manager. And he got in John's ear and John was like, this is the guy because Oh, this is something that we didn't mention, which we should have mentioned is, um, and I'm going to, his name is going to escape me. Um, their manager, Brian Epstein. Epstein. Yeah. Yeah. Brian Epstein committed suicide and he died before this started. He died in the period between, I believe between the white album and this. So, Paul makes a comment in there. He's very, very astute of his own kind of what's going on. His place. He he says, you know, like we, we need a father figure to come in and say, guys, let's get it together Mm -hmm. and do your job, but we won't listen to anybody. You know, Brian Mm -hmm. was gone and Brian Mm -hmm. was that guy for them. Right. George Martin kind of was in the studio as a producer, but Brian was that guy for like, here's how we do a TV show. Here's how we do a live performance. Here's the kind of ideas we need to try to do to make things work. And here's the work we need to do to get it done. And they just didn't have that. And they were such big celebrities that they wouldn't listen to anybody. Mm-hmm. And I think that John Lennon thought that Alan Klein was kind of mm. going to be that guy, that new guy. Cause he, he, you know, he was going to fill the same role that, that Brian Epstein did fill. And Paul McCartney did not like Alan Klein at all. And there's a lot of things. It, it's This documentary does not tell you why the Beatles broke up. As a matter of fact, it doesn't even show you how their last record was made. It just mm-hmm. shows you the last performance that they did on the mm-hmm. roof. So it's the last performance. They still made Abbey Road after this. And um, it was made three weeks later. Wow. Can you believe that? <laughs> that these guys were that fucking prolific that they could put out two records this good within... You know, they probably came out maybe within a year, but they were written and recorded within, you know, the same few months. That's insane. Same as Revolver Over Soul. They yeah. wrote those and did them all. They were back to back. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think there's a lot of things that are, you know, talked about with why the Beatles broke up and the documentary kind of illuminates that it wasn't Yoko. <laughs> she might have been a little bit of a thorn in their side that behind the scenes. I'm sure they didn't talk much about it in front of cameras. Mm-hmm. But, you know, more of a thorn in the side of like, oh, man, I wish my friend was would like, you know, mm-hmm. not as much like you're ruining the band. Yes. 
Um, obviously they had different ideas about what they wanted to do for the future of their lives. I think George was more into spirituality and he wanted to go in a different direction and be calm and quiet and get away from all the celebrity stuff. And, you know, John, obviously he made a lot of political statements and did really big things with his solo albums that were way more in the public eye in terms of politics and the war and all this stuff that was going on. And Paul just wanted to make Mm-hmm. kick-ass songs really you know and he yeah. did for he, many he many kept years right on going he kept right on going yeah. and they all they all did really well i think george might have done the best but um they all did pretty well out of the gate i think maybe paul did the worst of the three in turn right out of the gate like mccartney yeah. one compared to like plastic ono band or you know imagine or you know all things must pass mm-hmm. to all those different records i think mccartney one probably did the worst he had to find his his footing i guess yeah the other yeah. guys definitely had theirs yeah, from totally. the get-go. Yeah. I think George says something even in this documentary. Like, I've got three records he worth did of say that. songs He's ready like, to go. He's got like a hundred songs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they won't let me put them on the record. So, I mean, I've got so many songs. Um, but, you know, that was another takeaway from the whole thing is like, man, George, you know, he was younger than them. So he was, you know, I've kind of felt like this too, you know, with the guys I came up with. They were always better songwriters than me because they were older. They had more experience. They'd been playing longer. They'd learned more. And that development between being a teenager and being in your early 20s, a lot changes. You learn a lot. You become a lot better. And I think George was like, he was there. He was primed. He was like, well, time for me to make amazing songs, you know? And he really did that. You know, I think those songs on Abbey Road and these songs that he did, I love the songs that he did on this record. Mm-hmm. I Me Mine and um, what is it? Uh, For You Blue was one of them. That yes that there's on this one. I mean, I just, there's something about George that he just has these really simple, but interesting things. You know, he has this magic about him too. And it's, it's kind of incredible to think it's like, well, you already had Paul and you already had John. And then George also is this prolific person who has his totally own perspective. You know, his lyrics are a lot more about spirituality and and philosophy and they're a lot more meaningful. You know, Paul and John would just mm-hmm. write about like cats and a mm-hmm. fire hydrant, you yeah. know, whatever. You know, I mean, obviously John ended up writing. Yes. You know, Paul was the most whimsical of the three. Very whimsical, you know, which is it's kind of interesting that like I relate with Paul the most because I'm not very whimsical uh-huh. as a person. But I think it's more of his like his musical sense that I relate with. But mm-hmm. yeah, Paul was like Paul could you could just give Paul like a, you know, a pile of garbage and he would be able to write a cool song. out. Oh, yeah. You know, just anything. I think the songs like Jet is about one of his dogs. Martha, Martha, my dear, is one of his dogs. He had two two dogs that were really important. He wrote songs. Martha, my dear, and Jet are both. You know, Jet was a wing song, but they're mm-hmm. both about dogs of his. You know, he's just able to just write songs about whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't need a, a deep topic for Paul, and you know, I think that's like the magic of Paul. But. I don't know what what was your um, when you finished watching this eight hour saga. What was your your takeaway? Uh, well, I would say that. Well, before I get there, I would like to say that the 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 part at the end with the cops when the cops show up. Oh yeah, that was the funniest shit. Yeah, 
Because those guys were just kind of standing in that doorway, loitering around for like twenty minutes. Like, oh, you could tell that they were they were stringing them along. Like, yes, they were all, just they were totally just like uh, every everybody that was involved in Beatles management. Like, oh yeah, we don't really know. Yeah, where I don't the, know. I think that yeah, door is locked. locked. Uh, <laughs> I think they're turning it down now. Yeah, yeah like just, even Mal went down there. He was like, oh yeah, we already turned the speakers off. They didn't <laughs> turn any speakers. They turned nothing. Was turned uh-huh, off. You know? That was it. Was funny. That was a funny moment. Yeah. And then. They finally get the two cops up on the roof, and then the third, the big, that kind of the yeah, big the wig looking guy yeah, with all the, the stripes on his arm comes in. He's like, "Are there, are there other officers here? Like they're on the, oh, they're on the roof." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like, "Can I go up?" I, and I was just as we were as that was taking place, they were performing and they kept doing songs, and you could tell that the cops were like, "They need to stop." Mm-hmm. And so there was this kind of area where it's like when a song stops, somebody needs to tell them, "Hey, we need to be done." And they were going like, we're not going to do that. We're just going to keep rolling the songs back to back so they can't stop us. And I was watching and I was just waiting. Paul is going to start riffing about the cops being there. And he did. And it's funny because I don't, there's nothing that I can remember that I knew that. I just knew that that's how Paul thinks. Uh Like he's like looking at the cops. He's looking at the cops. He actually, when he sees the cops for the first time, he's like, woo. Like, well, it's about to get good. You can tell he's so excited about it. And he's like, and every time he looks back, I'm like, he's trying, he's formulating a way to integrate the cops being there into the lyrics Mm -hmm. so that he can like sing about it. Mm -hmm. And he did. He does. He does do that. And it's like, it's so Paul. It's the only, only way I know to put it. It's like, He's so good at improving in his own way, you know, like just spinning yarn. Like he's so good at like making something and like, and he also, that was another thing that I, that I had noted that we didn't say, but when they start performing, Paul transforms into another human being. He is like the best performer Mm. you've ever seen. Well, the whole band really steps up. To they the all do. They when, all the do. The minute they get up on that roof, I mean, it is no mistakes. They're perfect. I mean, I think John he does one flub a lyric or yeah, something. Yeah. And, he, he sings a line wrong yeah. in one of his takes, and they flub a chord or two. But like Paul is like, he's got this fire in his eyes that is like that I that I can relate to as a performer, where you step on stage and you go, "I have to be the best I have ever been in my entire life right now," and he doesn't. I can just see it, and I'm like. They, none of them look like that in the studio. They're mm-hmm. just like, oh, oh whatever. yeah, no. whatever. Let's have lunch. Yeah. Let's smoke 15 million cigarettes until we all have lung cancer and die. Sorry, George. <laughs> I mean, really. You probably should have cut it down to three packs oh, a day. Oh, my God. That was, I have a hard time watching people smoke like that. It hurts me just to watch it. But everybody was just oh, one God. after the just other. Just imagine having to, they had like their little kids in those rooms. Uh-huh. Like, oh, my God, these poor children. But, um, but, yeah, I mean, watching them perform is like, very interesting too, because it, it really shows you the different sides of a musician, you know, like, um, being in the studio is so different than performing. They're just totally two different beasts. And when you perform, it's why a lot of people want to make live records. You know, it's why the Beatles, I think are trying to make a live record. They're trying to rejuvenate some of that fire and passion. Unfortunately, they're still in this kind of setting. That's just like, there's no time limits. There's no number of takes. There's no, amount of reel. I think they make some comment about the, the amount, the pound per yeah. inch of reel. Yeah. And they're just like, and George is like, EMI will pay for, paying it. for you know, it. It's like their thing, but it's like, yeah, like they don't care. There's no limitations on what they can do. But when you get on a stage, 
you get the you get the performance that mm-hmm. you make and i think that that's that's part of like being a musician is is those the two the two the dichotomy of being a recording artist and being creative being like being a performer is not actually being very creative it's actually being um it's being sometimes it's being re- well rehearsed and sometimes it's being i would almost call it possessed possessed by your other self like the version of you that that just says okay we're moving now and we can't stop until we do it you know i think and maybe in a way like firefighters that go into a burning building are you know it's like once you commit to going into that building you've you've gone in mm-hmm. you know you're it's you're there now. yeah um and i think you know obviously lives aren't at stake but musicians take on that type of feeling when they're performing for people it's like i can't mess up you know i even if I do mess up, I have to keep mm-hmm. going. I have to appear as if it was intentional, you know, and the Beatles were great at that. You know, John sings all these lyrics and you see them look at each other mm-hmm. and they're smiling and they're laughing. And and I, and I think that was like my takeaway from the, the final part in the concert was like, these guys actually loved each other oh, and they sure. cared about each other and they enjoyed working with each other. And it was like Peter Jackson said, really amazing to get to see that. Mm-hmm. To see that this wasn't some like yes. era of misery. Yes, where they just ha- they, they were like, all miserable, hated each other, and just you know wanted to punch each other in the face. Yeah, they they really they yeah. really felt like they for the most part they were just they were having a great time doing it. Yeah, I mean there were definitely egos, of course, and there were definitely some prickly you know feelings, but like honestly they were pretty damn professional to work around that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, even though George did leave for a little while, like. When they worked together, they worked together. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't say, "Well, oh, you were mean to me yesterday, so I'm gonna suck at work." <laughs> you know, they they didn't do that. They put they took pride in their parts. You know, they a lot of times when you'd see them go listen to takes in the control room, you know, and Glenn would be like, "Oh, it's a great take. I think we can mix that." And George would be like, "I think we can do it better. I think we can refine our parts more." You know, they really cared about making good music, mm-hmm. and. It shows because they made the best music that's ever been made on this planet. That's a fact. I mean, I guess you could argue that argue that like Mozart and that maybe that era was that version of the best music sure. on the planet. You know, it wasn't. Yeah, as far as rock and roll pop rock music and, yeah. goes, the Beatles are pretty much right at the the pinnacle. Yeah. Yeah. It's the peak. Yeah, and it's it's funny. It's like, and I'm just gonna say it because I believe it. I think this is probably their worst album. <laughs> <laughs> and you know. The seeing this, how amazing they were and how amazing this writing process and these songs are at their worst, at their worst, yeah. you know, it's pretty amazing. Like, God, I mean, could you imagine being in on the magical mystery tour sessions or the <sighs> rubber soul sessions or the white album? Oh my God. Yeah. You know, no, I can't imagine, but I would wish they would have had footage like this of all that stuff. Wouldn't it be awesome to see? I mean, I think there was a little bit of I know there's some. There. There's of course a lot there of the is, anthology. but nothing like this. Have you have you watched the anthology top to bottom? Oh no, I haven't. So I have all, I have the it's uh, like six part DVD. I have the, the the CDs of it. Yeah. I've never actually watched the video yeah. part, so, which I'm sure is a lot more so extensive. So Chris Chris Sunk and I used to it would be on and when it would finish the six this, we just started over. <laughs> so no if you were asleep, yeah. it would still be running. If you were awake, oh you're eating breakfast, you're watching, uh, and then you go rehearse and you come back, it's still on like you know, we just devoured the anthology. It was like it was like our 
our mantra, our, it was everything. It was just mm-hmm. like, you just let it permeate the building at all times. So it was like, there's all these things that I, I can't tell you dates and times and all this, but I just like, you know, it's just like in my DNA somehow because of how mm-hmm. much we absorb the, the anthology. Yeah. I need to watch it. My boss actually was with me one day last week and I was telling him about this. He hadn't, he had not watched it yet. He's a huge music fan, loves the Beatles, loves the stones, loves all that stuff. And, uh, he mentioned about the anthology. I was like, well, I got the CDs. I never saw the, the movies. He's like, I, I'm going to let you borrow mine because yeah. you need to watch it. So that's on his list of things to do is yeah. to let me have his discs. Yeah. And I'm going to watch those. It's, you know, it's more put together. Like this was very, I liked how this was very intimate and not mm-hmm. like, let me let Peter Jackson insert his own vision. Like he really let it be. Mm-hmm. You let it be. Yes. But I think the anthology has more of the like, here's John as a baby and here's how he became, a, you know, it, it does a lot of that in the early, like the first disc is a little boring just because you're getting like, John went to grade school here and, you know, and whatever. But you do learn how they meet. And mm-hmm. There's some great anecdotal stuff about when they were teenagers, they would literally have to get on like a bus and go across town to, to the guy that knows the B chord. chord. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, that stuff is so cool, you know, like it, I'm so envious of those types of, of experiences, you know, there's in today's world, it's just like, oh, we'll go, you know, Google it or yeah, YouTube Google or whatever. Right. Um, but those experiences are what made them magical because they went and learned everything from this very naive way. Mm-hmm. And then they applied it in ways that were solely creative because they didn't know any other way. The only thing we have to do is listen to people's vinyl. Uh-huh. <laughs> there's no tabs. There's yeah. no charts. There's oh, no yeah. internet. There's no, you know, we can watch them perform if we can go to a club and we can listen to vinyl and we can pick out stuff mm-hmm. and then we can figure out how to utilize stuff people have done, you know, in some way. And I think that's part of the magic and charm of how a lot of that music was made. And the Beatles, honestly, it's funny because I, I, I do talk a lot with random people about how music is so derivative and so ripped off now. And, uh, you know, um, but honestly the Beatles were like the greatest ripoffs, you know, they took the best things mm-hmm. from blues and they took the best things from jazz and, and old, you know, timey, like kind of show tunes mm-hmm. and Paul integrated a lot of things like that. Um, and they just in country and all these yeah, different Carl genres. Perkins, Elvis Presley. Yeah. Exactly. They, and you know, Bob Dylan, they worship Bob Dylan. Uh-huh. You know, this kind of Buck folk, Owens. Alt, folk stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then, then their contemporaries like the beach boys, they, you know, they really did. They pulled from all the things that they love to make their music. You know, they were in a way, they were kind of like walking encyclopedias. They had all this information that they had just consumed mm-hmm. and then they just focused it. They funneled it right into mm-hmm. their own music. And it came out in a way that was very new sounding mm-hmm. and authentic to them. And, you know, I think, I think people are somewhat missing that. Um, they're missing that part of it, you know, like how to utilize other people's music in a way to make your own creation. Um, I know I already made this reference for you, but I want to make it to you again because we're recording it is, is the Beatles, People view the Beatles like an old car, like mm. an old, like an old Mustang or something. They, mm-hmm. they view the Beatles and they say, Oh, what a beautiful car. It's amazing. I love the way it looks and how it sounds and how it smells and how it runs. I would never make a car like that. You know, I'm going to build a mm-hmm. brand new, perfect, you yeah. know, modern up-to-date car mm-hmm. that's a, 
perfectly safe. Yep. That's kind of how music is today. You know, people are too afraid to allow their music to be like that was because it's vulnerable, because they're not the greatest musicians in the world. You know, there is no way to quantize or auto-tune mm-hmm. or do any of those things. You know, they literally had to learn from their peers and then figure shit out mm-hmm. and then do it in a room together, you know, and record it to a, to a tape reel. And, and, and it really challenged them to be as good as they were. And at the same time, they, they were kind of childlike in their approach to making music. You know, they're not these like seasoned session players, mm-hmm. you know, again, to people that don't really listen, that understand like musicians, the Beatles are not the greatest musicians of all time. They're a magic chemistry of artistry, mm-hmm. you know, that allows them to utilize musical talents to, to, to make amazing sounding records. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not necessarily the best four musicians of the era put into a room together. No, you know, they all definitely have their strengths and weaknesses. And I, and I think they, you see that in this documentary, they lean on, on each other for certain things, you know? Um, I mean, nobody can sing as high as Paul. So he's always the guy singing the, like the falsetto stuff. Mm-hmm. You know? His range is just insane. Yeah. He's, he was a hell of a singer, hell of a singer. Like, and he loved like emulating people. You know, that's the cool thing about Paul that I really like is like he, all of his songs sound different because he's like, Oh, I'm, I'm doing little Richard here. I'm doing, you know, he'd always reference people. He referenced Ray Charles when he was talking about um, the long and winding road or was it, um, or maybe it was let it be, but he, you know, he would reference these people in the way that he's like, this is the way I hear the song, you know, and he would, he would sing like those people mm-hmm. to a degree. He would change the timbre of his voice to sound like other people still sounded like him, but it was like a technique, you know, mm-hmm. a singing technique. Um, I don't know. Paul's just such a fascinating, fascinating person. Yeah, he was, uh, I, I would say he is probably the most, to me, he's the Beatle who I think of as really being the, the magic man. Uh, I know that John was extremely talented and he had a lot to say, but Paul was the guy who I feel like just had the vision in his brain. And you see that in this because you see him being the sort of the, the, the ringleader of everybody. Yeah. And somebody had to be that guy. You have to have a band. And, and yeah. you know, and it was when it wasn't going to be, when John wasn't interested in doing that role, then he was going to do the role and he did the role pretty well. But he's, he definitely had the vision for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, any, any final thoughts on, on the documentary? Um, I feel like I've, I feel like we've covered it pretty well. Uh, yeah, no, I think we're good. Has it been transformative to your life? Is this documentary, uh, does it, is it more than just a piece of entertainment? Um, I don't know. I wouldn't say it transformed my life or anything. That's probably putting a little bit too much on it, but it was a very, it was very entertaining, very illuminating. And it was just, it was neat to see them in their, you know, kind of in back in their heyday looking that good. I mean, the, the, the quality of it is amazing. I know it and like the sound what, quality is, you know, so, so here and there, but the, the visual quality. Well, do you know the sound quality? Right. It was all recorded on mono. Yeah. Like all those overhead mics where yeah. they were just recording audio. It was all recorded mono 
And if somebody was banging away on a guitar or bashing the drums, yeah. you couldn't hear. Oh, there's stuff clipping so out all the time. Yeah. What what they'd had to do, Peter Jackson, they had to actually write a piece of software that would go and be able to isolate, the, you know, isolate each individual element so that they could turn the drums down. Off yeah. of a mono tape, they were able to somehow write software that could. I don't know. If that's it's, right. They did. They created a piece of software. Yeah, they had to yeah, actually make software incredible. to turn the guitars down, or so that you could hear right. the, the conversation. Well, you know, there's happening. like there's there's things that are like you know noise uh, suppressors and noise reducer like plugins and stuff you can use to clean up audio. Say like if there's wind sounds yeah. and stuff like that. So it sounds like there's like an algorithm that's made to you know to find certain sounds to, to pull those well, out. Well, like, according to Peter Jackson, they literally had to write a piece of software from scratch wow. because he said the software to do what he wanted to do did not exist. Right. So they yeah, had to I, make it. I believe it. that. I believe that. Um I mean it, it sounds pretty damn so, good. So I mean for what it is, it mind, sounds very good yeah. and it looks amazing. Yeah, it looks it, incredible. It looks it looks great. So it was uh you know, I've watched it twice, so. Full uh, through? I, yeah. Wow, yeah. <laughs> so I I enjoyed it quite a bit and I I, uh, I may yeah. watch it again before it's over with. But. Yeah. Yeah. This has been a really fun day. It has been a fun day.